Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Miss Nakia. Yes. Renee Little has an awesome background. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of give you guys a high level. From school at FAMU to a master in design and graphics to school at Northwestern to all of a sudden working at an awesome place like the FBI, being very involved in her community. I would like to introduce you to Miss Makia Renee Little, candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates. Hello, Makia. How you doing, girl? I'm blessed. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. How you feeling? Well, now you just took me back to knock a few bucks. So I, <laughs> I'm uh, trying to trying to get back into uh, business mode now. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, we if we don't know nothing, we know how to switch it up. Right. Amen. And, you know, it's kind of cool, though. I love it, man, because, you know, you know, I've always been a fan. Anybody who knows me, they always know I've been a fan of that holistic person. Right. Bringing your whole self, you know, and don't get me wrong. I get dinged all the time. You know, they nickname me the boho brainiac and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I get it. But one thing I love, I love the culture. I love what we do. And I love that whenever you say nook. And Buck, sometimes people just know what that means. They be like, hey, it is what it is. But if we could go ahead and get started, let's go ahead and get started and tell us about you. We love here at Southern Soul a solid origin story. Tell us your origin story, what you grew up in, essential information about you. Absolutely. Well, um, I grew up as an army brat, so diversity was just a part of my lived experience. I was born in Arizona shipped to Chicago after six weeks and um, lived in Texas. My, my roots are Mississippi. Um, my stepfather's from Baltimore. So uh, did some time in Berlin, Germany, left when the wall came down, ended up in Highland Park at a base where that was really my first introduction to racism because in Berlin, there was no race. It was, it was either you were American or you were German. And so not being introduced to racism until I was about nine, 10 years old, it was like um, a bit of a slap in the face because it was like, I know it doesn't have to be this way, you know? Um, and then I moved from that environment where I was the only black girl in my grade level to PG County, Maryland, where now people know how to pronounce my name. And so um, code switching, if you will, was my upbringing, uh, went to the number one high school in the nation, uh, which is why I'm competitive. Sorry, uh, homicide, you, you can get the prize. <laughs> um, I'm very competitive, and but decided that that non-inclusive environment wasn't healthy for me. Um, that, that sense that you always have to prove your self-worth, uh, prove your competitiveness, prove your intelligence. I got tired of it. And so when Florida A&M was named number one, you know, Time Magazine, Princeton Review College of the Year, I was like, sign me up and uh, fell in love with the campus, fell in love with the energy, the people and um, never looked back, never looked back. 
I, I, I love, love, love a FAMU grad. I don't know what it is because y'all be down there in Florida in that small town <laughs> having a good time. I love a solid college town. Yes. You know, one thing I, I love about your story, uh, Mickey, is that it hasn't always been roses. It hasn't always been beautiful. And I love that because when I begin to prepare for the show, I begin to look at not only your background and your story, but other women who have chosen to run for office. Yeah. But before we get into the details of Phoenix Foundation and things of such, tell us about your life experiences and why you decided to run for office. Um, absolutely. I, um, actually today is my one year campaign anniversary. So I have been running this race for an entire year. I never thought this would be something that, that a journey that life would take me down, but it actually started with a study guide, um, helping my daughter study for the Virginia SOLs and seeing the content of it and how as a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner, trying to, you know, remediate unconscious bias, realizing that we're feeding it to our children on the front end by not teaching African-American history, by teaching um, children of all races that Black people are essentially slaved versus were enslaved. And, um, that mentality is what they grow up with. And so when we seek to promote beyond that, it's, it's this glass ceiling, you know? And so trying to set out to change, literally change the course, um, and issues with my high school, a lack of diversity kind of led me down a path towards education equity and battling for that. But in 2021, uh, while battling equity issues, um, I was assaulted by my husband. And because I had advocated for education issues, uh, changes to policy at the state level, I basically knew the blueprint of how to change laws. And when I discovered that the law in Virginia was such that, uh, say he had cheated on me, I would have been able to get an immediate divorce once I proved that. But him putting me in the hospital instead, I had to wait a year. And what I realized is that I can actually advocate for the law to change faster than I can get a divorce. So I set out to do that. I set out to change the law and I wrote my first bill, um, looked for a co-sponsor, uh, took a minute to find one. Bill died in subcommittee because some lawyers felt it would negatively impact their billables. And so one of the delegates that I got to, to co-patron it. She was very apologetic. She said, you know, I'm so sorry. Um, next time I'll carry the bill myself. And I said, okay, next time I'm gonna carry the bill myself. And she's like, oh, you're rocking. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna endorse you. Um, and it was just like, I saw so many barriers to not just success opportunities for students, but just livelihood for citizens that don't have to be this way. And I'm looking around and our heroes, John Lewis's, the Elijah Cummings, they're dying. And I'm like, who's coming to save us? And then I saw the mirror. So I decided to run. Awesome, awesome. You know, I love that story because many people have heard about 
the challenges, the fears. And sometimes the fears can be so overwhelming that people get lost. So I love the courage that not only did you decide to heal, but decide to do something about it. And I can only imagine the passion that goes behind that. I happen to know that next you didn't stop there. You begin to develop an organization called the Phoenix Organization. And I love the phrase that you describe it. You say, transforming your pain into purpose. And I loved it so much that I began to theme the show tonight on that because I began to see this theme of going from pain to purpose. Yeah. Tell us about the Phoenix Foundation and that phrase, transforming your pain into purpose. Um, absolutely. So thank you for that. The Phoenix Foundation was actually a vision um, that God gave me about a year ago. And it was, it was one of these things that woke me up in the middle of the night and I just started writing. I just started writing this vision that I saw and trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this thing? And I just felt the spirit say, shelve it. And I'm like, okay, you would give me this heavy vision, this, this, <laughs> and just tell me to put it on the shelf. Okay. All right. Whatever. Um, and so I, I just saved it in my notes and didn't really do anything with it, but I just lived. Um, I lived, I, I, you know, launched my campaign. I met people, I made relationships, I made connections. And on Thanksgiving day, um, I, I, I felt the spirit tell me, okay, now build. And I had plans and everything, but it was so palpable. I was like, okay, I guess that's what I'm doing today. And I sat down in that website that you see, I built that in a day. I built that Thanksgiving day. And I called people said, Hey, I need you to be on my board and five minutes. Yes, yes, yes. And I don't think I've ever gotten responses that quick from, from so many people, especially on Thanksgiving day. So I knew that, that God was in it and, um, He's been with me this whole time. So I trust his plan, his vision. And um, what the Phoenix Foundation is meant to do is to be an organization that um, enhances survivorship training and prevention. I think especially in our culture, we have a habit of um, keeping our business to ourselves telling our children to stay out of grown folk business and not really teaching them what healthy, unhealthy and abusive relationships look like. They become normalized and we create generational cycles of domestic violence, not even considering that this is not normal. And so, as you can imagine, uh, the African-American community suffers the most uh, from domestic violence. And in Virginia, Domestic violence accounts for 30% of our homicides. And so what my organization does is it, it centralizes resources. Our board members are also directors of their own nonprofits that carry a space and a lane in that healing process. And what we're trying to do is bring all that together so that from prevention to survivorship training, wraparound services, whether that's financial literacy, job placement, um, shelters, yes, but we want to call them survivor centers. Um, how do we carry that individual so that they can thrive and not just survive 
um, and transform whatever pain that they experienced into purpose moving forward. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I, I love the concept of what is it? The wraparound service, you know, explain us what that is, because, you know, I, when I first heard it, I was like, it kind of sounds cool, but I didn't really understand it. You know, what is a wraparound service and why is that so important for this type of work? Um, I think it's best um, summarized. If anyone has ever seen the Netflix series um, made the maid, they showed a woman who was struggling with, first of all, conceding that she was a survivor of domestic violence because it had it hadn't turned physical. She rejected that she was even a victim of domestic violence because he hadn't hit her. And so when she tried to break away from the relationship, uh, because there's also something called financial abuse that most people don't even consider or know about. Uh, typically the abuser is about, it's really about power and control. So the abuser is typically the breadwinner, or even if they're not the breadwinner, they control the finances. So first barrier to breaking away, which is why there are so many domestic violence shelters is because the victims are typically the ones who become homeless. And so recognizing that, you know, a survivor won't just need a place to stay, but that they may need daycare. They may need a job opportunity that uh, requires some education resources. They may need some counseling. They may need therapy. Um, they may need, in my case, chiropractor. Um, so making sure that we're taking care of the whole person, mind, body, soul, finances, so that there's no recidivism in them going back. Yeah, thanks for that. And, you know, I, I, I like it because, you know, it, it's so important to essentially meet those needs and not just, you know, the obvious. One of the things they say when it comes to running for office is that a lot of time people are involved in certain civic organizations, they're involved in certain community activities. Do you have any favorite organization, you know, HA, HOA or like HOA is so bad right now. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but um, any thoughts or recommendations for the people who are listening of certain organizations that you may enjoy that may help you, you know, initially kind of begin to see what it meant to just, you know, begin to advocate for others? Uh, well, obviously, um, big on sisterhood, uh, uh Probably can't guess, but <laughs> uh, as a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, the values that um, were instilled in me in, in joining that organization and uh, lifting as we climb, uh, that definitely has helped shape me, not just as a, a woman, but as a member of a, of a broader community. Um, in this journey, I've definitely recognize the importance of having a spiritual community. So church, um, and, and, and having other believers surrounding you, I believe is, is an important part of not just, um, you know, healing, but, but, but keeping your, your mental and spiritual health in order to face some of the challenging times in life. Um, and um, also community groups like uh, for children. I have three 
their their stair steps. So uh, 13, 14 and 15 and exposing them to their peers outside of school, um, I think is important to teach them some of the some of the lessons that they won't learn in the curriculum and that they'll, they'll be able to glean from one another. Awesome. 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 I want to transition to the topic, um, electing black women. I, I love that phrase. I mean, I would love to see the hashtag begin to trend, elect black women. Why do you feel that it's important based on what we are today in time and society that it's important to elect black women? I would say obviously no, no group is a monolith, right? Um, but there are certain attributes that exist more in certain demographics than others. And based on our culture, what I would say is that Black women are naturally nurturers. Um, we are the backbones of our families, our, our matriarchs are our everything. And it's because I believe when you, when you have um, an individual who, what we consider a double minority, right? Um, I know what it feels like to face racism. I also know what it feels like to face sexism. And when you can empathize with those most harmed by society's systems, you're more prone to want to fix them, not just for your children, but for everyone's children, you know, kind of that village mom. And so to have uh, individuals in legislative spaces with, with homegrown empathy, I think um, it's important to ensure that we co-create a society that works for everyone. Awesome. Oh, my goodness. I, 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 I love that. And, you know, I hadn't thought about it through that perspective, but I definitely can appreciate the nurturing. I can appreciate that relating, you know, to those communities that are, as you say, most harmed. We just want to make sure everybody good. That's all. That's all everybody good. Everybody's OK. You know, I often, you know, hope for this community this community that begins to see these things and respond to them in a way that it's just natural, right? It's like, yeah, we got to do it. I mean, we got to do it and we got to do it because not only do we see the problem, we experience the problem and we right. understand the problem very well. Right. And who better to see, understand the problem very well, mm -hmm. just as, you know, you talked about going from experiencing it to realizing what I can't get a divorce. And you can get a divorce easily if, right? I mean, it's something about having to walk through those experiences. I want to kind of talk about community first before we open up discussion. So if you're in the audience and you got thoughts, definitely be thinking about typing in your questions. Or are we going to try to unmute and let you get a chance to speak? Sometimes the audience is shy. The more serious the topic, the shy they are. But every now and then you get someone who's vocal. So we're, we're going to see what we got with you tonight. Okay. But um, for you... Um, Makia, what as a community do you think we could do differently to support our black women candidates? Donate, donate. Um, and it, it, it sounds callous, which I had to personally get over, especially as a black woman who kind of 
you know, grew up in that independent women, um, you know, I make my own money and my womanhood is now tied to my ability to, to survive on my own, um, to then have to pivot, humble myself, detach my self-worth from that ask and say, I literally cannot do this alone. I cannot pay for staff. I can't buy mailers. I can't pay for postage um, without the support of my community. And one of the other things that I would like to add, like I said, no, no demographic is a monolith. And as we know, all skin folk ain't kin folk. And when you are genuinely running to represent people, your funding source matters. Because when you aren't funded by the people, it's hard to represent the people in the purest form, which is why my sore Shirley Chisholm made such a big deal about being unbought and unbossed. Because when your people aren't funding your campaign, special interests definitely will, especially when black women leaders are trending. So if they can find a black female who is willing to be their black face to run for office and fund their campaign, guess who they're going to be accountable to? You know, I love the way you described it and you did it so much more eloquent than I would do it. You know, someone would once say uh, politicians are rented and they're rented by whoever represents them. And if their own community don't support them, right. then guess who is renting them? Exactly. And I even personally had to kind of digest that at one point in time, because you can complain all day, but if you didn't write the check, you'd be like, you know that person working for whoever um, wrote them a check because they can't do it on their own. Mm -hmm. But I like the way not only how you describe it, but you describe the practical parts of it the mailers, the campaign, the staff. I mean, you have a campaign manager. Who's going to pay the campaign manager? You can't pay that. You got right. three kids. Right? Not only that, I had to resign. I had to resign from public office. You cannot hold a federal position uh, because of the Hatch Act. You cannot work for the federal government and run for a partisan office. And so thank God, fam, you taught me how to be an entrepreneur. But... I'm running for a position that pays $17,400. Wow. That is, um, I'm about to do 15. Um, so what's that? Seven, $8 an hour. That's like $8 and $50, $8 and 50 cents an hour. <laughs> Woo. Child, I'm going to have to go back to talk. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? The, the, the journey and the impact is is worth it um leaving i just i just did a post on this you know leaving this world and our society better than i found it um trusting god to make a way um is what keeps me going awesome awesome well well definitely you know i i love your story and i i love where you're going and we're gonna ask you another question and then hang out for some q a and we're sharing your contact information in the chat so the audience can follow you and donate because those mailers are not going to pay for themselves. Yeah, not cheap. <laughs> Tell us this. What, what's next for you? Right. Um, you know, I see you have your faith in God. You have a desire 
to help people. What's next for you? Office, you know, another government job. Tell us, you know, what, what's next for you? What do you see in the next five, 10, 15 years? I definitely um, have a desire to further develop the Phoenix Foundation and bring that full vision to fruition. It's going to take time. Um, it's going to be a step-by-step process, but I trust God's timing. We'll move at his pace, but um, getting that off the ground, we just applied for our 501c3 um, approval from the IRS. So uh, getting grants established, we have our first event this weekend. It's going to be an HBCU, Hispanic Serving Institution, Labor and Entrepreneurship Fair in Northern Virginia, um, just to open up the possibilities of what I'll call non-traditional post-secondary education opportunities for youth. I think um, an increase in violence is a sign of um, not enough opportunity in an area. And that's one of the things that my district is is struggling with, um, gun violence, drug use. And so I want to make sure instead of fighting over pie, we're baking more pie. So just opportunities, growing opportunities in my region. Awesome. So one question I didn't ask you, but I just realized that I have admired, you know, as I begin to follow you and your campaign, it hits me. I've observed, I'm like, you're really good at building relationships. I mean, endorsements and relationships and whatever. Do you consider that a gift of yours? Tell us about, you know, relationship building when it comes to campaign. I mean, if you talk about the endorsements you get from people, the support and things like that. And I'm proud because at the same time, this is your, to some extent, your first rodeo, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like it. It's almost like you feel like a season, you know, in this. And then maybe I'm wondering, it's because it's the work you've done, the relationships you built. Tell us about that. Uh, so I can absolutely say after years of different personality assessments, I'm probably the most extroverted person that ever extroverted. But um, I think it, it just really comes from, I, I have a love for people. I love people and I believe that to whom much is given, much is required. So if I have something and I can help you get to where you're trying to go with what I have, I want to do that thing. And um, that whole idea of leaving things better with than you know, than you found them um, lifting as we climb. I don't have to rain on your parade to, to get where I'm trying to go. And um, yeah, I just like humans. Awesome. Extroverted. Um, Extroverts always kind of amaze me. I'm highly introverted. So it's always interesting, (laughs) right? I'm like, what's wrong with those people? What makes them so happy? What makes them so, it's just such weird energy for me. And people are like, I get it. You know, it's a long story. I'll I'll explain to you. People give me energy back. I love it. Is that what they do? They they give you energy? Is it like... Chocolate, uh, uh, (laughs) how does it work? I mean, I'm so confused by it anyway. Well, I'm a lover of learning and I feel like you can literally learn anything from anyone, even a child, like that child knows something that you don't. And so it's almost like a puzzle. Like um, I actually described it to one friend. It's like an Easter egg hunt. Like when I meet someone, it's like, okay, I don't know what you know. You don't know what I know, but I'm sure there's something we have in common. And so it's like, how do I find the Easter eggs? Like what? And, and, and so you start a conversation and it just takes you on this journey. And then it's like, aha, this is where we connect. Um, but think of it as like a, a human jigsaw puzzle. We're all connected in some way. 
You know, I'm definitely going to be using that because the next time <laughs> I'm feeling antisocial and I'm like, mm, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a grumpy bird. I don't want to talk. Right. And I'm just going to I'm saying, you know, Calvin, go find the eggs, you know, go find the Easter egg. There's probably some candy in one of them. I'm just I'm actually going to use that. I'm using that work. Thank you for sharing that. You, you just helped me like can't take. T- thank you. Right. Because doing the work, I have to find that motivation. Let's do some questions. Let's get some questions from the audience. Let's do some Q&A. Um, let's see here. And we got some that um, are typed. But um, if you have a question, you can um, hit the um, emoji or something. I don't know. Put it in the chat if you want to talk. Um, we're going to read the ones who are typed first. Tamika, you, can you help me feel those questions? Have you been watching them? Yeah. Um, actually, only one has come in so far. And Is that the one from, from Angela? Angela. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can read that one. Uh, okay. And for the audience to begin to continue to um, type your questions and get ready for a discussion too. And just as a reminder, so our guest, um, Judge Robin, she's actually going to be on intermission. So what we're going to do is have an intermission and come back. And it's going to be an hour break. You know, Uncle Walter, you know, he in Hawaii, so he'll take a break, get coffee, and it's probably like 2 p.m. his time. So he'll be back. But if you miss it because you need to get back to life, put the kids down, it's okay. It will be published next week if you miss Judge Robin, but she's going to be here at, I'm going to record her at 1030. So if you missed the intermission and we got my brother DJ K Boogie, because we don't just cover a good topic. He got a mix. I don't know what his mix is for this week, but we're going to listen. And y'all know my favorite thing is to play some of my daddy's favorite records. So I got one of them here tonight and I got the uh, vinyl behind me. We're going to play that. But before we get into that, Let's do some questions, then let's do open discussion, and then we're going to listen to some music, and we're going to take a break. And for those who are up late night hours, come back and we'll do um, Judge Robin at 1030. So let's go. Let me read this question um, from Angela. As a black woman running for office or holding office, how do black women put things in a place to secure themselves? For example... Being a strong voice in a community, I often wonder how women of color go about securing themselves. Being a voice for others can be a little scary. Um, So the way that I secure myself is remembering that I have an audience of one. And I think potentially having um, a near-death experience reminded me of that that this life is so temporary. And so uh, we, we probably all sang the, the song we were in church, you know, growing up, uh, only what you do for Christ will last. Um, but just remembering that there's only one judge. And as long as you stay connected with him and have his approval, the approval of man matters not. So as long as I can hear in my spirit that he's proud, can't tell me nothing. Awesome. I, I, I love that bravery. And I'm pretty sure that comes from somewhere. She didn't tell us about mom and daddy, but uh, this, woman, <laughs> this woman brave. Where you get that bravery from? That's, I'm just yeah, getting My mom is a gangster. My mother. Oh, yeah. She's a uh, gangster. Okay. Yeah, my mom, she's a former Army intelligence, FBI special agent. And um, she she taught me Nuck If You Buck before I heard the song. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, and, and that's good because one of the things I did see is, I was doing research is that it's been stated that, you know, 
black women work hard to get in office, but when they get there, it may not feel safe. Mm-hmm. And we live during weird times, right? Mm-hmm. So I definitely think there's some work that needs to be done on that topic. And kudos to you for your bravery. But as they say, we definitely going to have to protect black women because it's one thing to be a leader. But when you begin to advocate for others, we just live in a weird world. I'm just going to call it the age world. We do. But I would go ahead. I'm sorry. And, and threats to public figures are only increasing. Um, so the more vocal you are, the more you basically set yourself up for attack. And and what I've actually noticed in this journey of being not just an outspoken uh, advocate, but also being a survivor of domestic violence, uh, my extrovertedness has had to do some adjusting with, um, you know, keeping my address private and learning the law around privacy. Um, there's probably only two people who know where I live, you know, like uh, where before I was an oversharer and and all the things, even my car, there's no Delta, there's no FAMU, there's no nothing, no vanity tags on my car. Um, and so just changing how I move about um, and protect my children is definitely something that I've had to develop a level of shrewdness about. Um, but that is also just being smart and um, developing a stronger spirit of discernment. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I love it. So we have a question from Jenna. She she lives in Prince Williams County. She's committed to grassroots community organizing, and she applauds your work. Aww. What ideas do you have for mobilizing, organizing Black people who seem very complacent and even, is it apathetic or apathy? Yeah. Uh, so that is definitely one of the barriers that I would say we, as not just Black women, but Black people have when it comes to running for public office. We don't know what we don't know. And at, when we decide to run, not only are we putting ourselves out there, we're also having to educate our social circles on what canvassing is, what phone banking is, what mailers are, um, what a fundraiser should look like. I still can't get my parents to throw me a fundraiser because they just feel so uncomfortable, like this isn't their space. And so one of the things that I've actually um, started doing is advocating for a public policy program at one of the high schools in Prince William County, Potomac High School. Wow. And um, dedicating it to the late Elijah Cummings, who was my first political mentor. Um, and basically the lessons that I'm learning at 40, make sure that our students, our youth are learning those at 14. Um, learning how to advocate for themselves, because I feel like a lot of, a lot of situations and circumstances we accept because we don't realize we can actually change them because no one taught us how to, you know, um, how to show up at school board meetings, how to go to the board of county supervisors, how to even sign up where on the website you go, um, public comments, that whole process of how, uh, an idea becomes a bill, how that bill becomes a law, like schoolhouse rock, just don't break it down far enough into the weeds. And so making sure that our youth, grow up with that being normalized is how we build grassroots in our community for their future. Teach them how to fish, 
Awesome. And there's definitely some claps and some finger snaps for the public policy program for high schoolers. It is a beautiful thing. I think I had a dream about that the other day. A comment from North Carolina. You are amazing and a pure inspiration. Thank you for sharing your light with us. Any more questions? Any uh, questions for the speaker? Um, Joy had her hand raised. Um, And then also Margaret wanted to know where your nonprofit was located. Okay. Um, Just unmuted Joy. So we'll let Joe go first and we'll come next with Margaret. And I'm going to share her information in the chat again so you guys can essentially it should be on your website the location right uh it's it's based in in woodbridge virginia which is in prince william county um but we plan on serving the northern virginia region awesome go ahead joy you have a question for us Okay, thank you all so much. I'm so excited about this. First, with respect to the 22, hello, Soror. I am absolutely excited about what you're doing. My question and a comment, um, like myself, I lived in London for 10 years, non-military, went to the University of Liverpool. So coming back to the States, I have a nonprofit myself, so any assistance I can help you with, EIEN number and all that stuff, please reach out. I've put my details in um, the chat with you. Thank you. My trouble has been, you know, when you live abroad and when you travel, your mindset changes. Mm -hmm. And as a Black woman, Coming back, I'm from Birmingham, born and bred out of Birmingham, lived in Atlanta 15 years on and off to telling my age now. Um, how do you work with, and you know, being in a, an organization like we're, we're in, sometimes it's a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. you know, the support system. So how do you work around? Because being, I've come back to Birmingham recently, my Delta Deer passed two years ago, and trying to find my niche, the network, the like-minded sisters who are trying to uplift me and I want to uplift them. I'm raising a, a young king. He's 20 at a So now is my time. You know, I was a mother and I put all my time into that. So now I want to do joy. But how do you find, you know, what are the nuggets to find these like-minded village sisters? Like, you know, your real roller die sisters. I, you know, I need to know that. Yep. Uh, That is a wonderful question. And what I would say is that it wasn't something that I set out to do. I don't really believe in New Year's resolutions, but I want to say around 2020, I felt a call to find my tribe. Like that was my theme for the year was find your tribe find your tribe. And what I discovered in that year is friends that I had, um, I lost friend. I met new people and it was almost like, um, God turned my life into this Rubik's cube. And, um, again, all skin folk ain't kin folk, all sores ain't sisterly. Um, all like you can't really judge people by, the exterior is energy. And, um, at this point in my life, and maybe it's just my lived experience, I can feel it. And I don't invest in people who don't seem interested in investing in me. 
And that's how I can serve energy. Awesome. I, I, I love it. I love it. Being an energy being, you're talking about that discernment, that spirit of discernment. And sometimes people are like, what are you talking about? Are you some kind of wizard? I'm like, yeah, I don't understand. You know, my grandma used to tell me, baby, don't read people in business. They don't, don't like it. I said, grandma, I can't help it. You know, I got the gift. And she said, well, keep it to yourself. <laughs> but one thing I love, love, love is, you know, you, you call it right. I love how you say it. All sisterly, all sisters aren't sisterly, all skinfolk ain't kinfolk. You know, the good judge, she's going to be here at 1030. But one thing that I enjoy talking to her about is she says, if you really, really want to know who your people are, who your real friends are, try running for public office. Oh, I love that statement. Because, you know, you got the parent, people who tolerate you, the people who just watch because they won't see if you're going to be successful yeah. or fail. You know, if you're successful, they want to be, say, I've been around since the beginning. If you fail, they'd be like, mm -hmm, I knew he was going to make it. Mm -hmm. Right. But I like the way you describe the season of these things. Yeah. You know, as young people, you know, we may entertain, you know, them fake friends and all the other stuff, but you can feel it. You know what I mean? And sometimes you catch them, you be walking all of a sudden, you see some mannerism change. You're like, what was that? It was a shift in the force and kudos to you for not only finding that, because sometimes sometimes when we go through life and experience, we lose that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it seems like you found that you refound your energy. And I bet you be walking in a room, be like, I'm going to go on this Easter egg hunt. And when you be like, <laughs> uh -uh, bad egg, bad egg, we don't want it. So I love yeah. it. I love it. I love it. But another nugget of wisdom someone actually gave me is that there are no permanent enemies or friends in politics. And so it's also learning who your actual friends are versus who your political friends are. And it's not a bad or, you know, it just is what it is because there are certain relationships you have to maintain. You may be friends on this bill, but not a friend on this bill. Um, but I still got to work with you. I still got to respect you and not burn that bridge. Um, and keeping that separate from your actual friends, the ones that care about your well-being and call you because <laughs> they just were thinking about you and want to make sure you're good. Um, that's the other uh, uh, challenge when you're running for office. Awesome. Awesome. I love, love, love the wisdom there. Let's take maybe one more question before we begin to transition to our open discussion. What questions, what other questions we got? Any more questions or statement? I really love the energy. Thank you all for behaving. You know, always, you never know on these tough topics. But I think it was Southern Soul, you know, y'all y'all been showing like y'all, you know, know how to act lately. I'm, I'm proud of y'all. Y'all make me proud. Jennifer <laughs> says, I love it, conserve energy by not investing in certain people who are not investing in me. Boy, I said, checking account got to have multiple deposits. Not If you're the only person making deposit. What you need a check in account for? You don't need that. But um, <laughs> let's see here. Um, I don't think I see any more questions. Tamika, you see any more questions? There are a couple that were put in there. Uh, Lots of comments just to let you know, Makia, people are really um, enjoying the wisdom that you are sharing. So that's coming through the chat um, as well. But there was a question from Angela. So many efforts are now are being dubbed indoctrination. So how do you counter that? Um, so it, it's 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 frustrating because one of the parallels that I've seen when it comes to domestic violence and what I now see in politics 
is the gaslighting is real. The gaslighting is so real. And so again, studying the the pattern and practice of um, abusive behavior um, and realizing that indoctrinization is what has been going on this whole time. And now what we have is an anti-woke movement to get back to indoctrinization. Um, but we, we've seen it, like we, we see it, we see you. And so it's really a matter of, um, and as, as an Omega, you know, standing on our one <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and recognizing, no, we know who we are. We know what we're calling for. And you may call it indoctrinization, but that's what you're doing. Um, we actually want to educate children and teach them not what to think, but how to think. And one of the things that I shared recently in an interview was if you really study history, um, especially the Holocaust, you will see some patterns in behavior where they gathered books, they burned books. Um, and that was step one to their indoctrinization to teach um, Germans to hate Jews. And so if we don't know that history, how can we call it out and change that course of behavior um, when they take that part out of our curriculum? Does that make sense? I love it. You know, our speaker last week, you know, she wrote this book and I just got it. Um, No new movement, she called it. And the concept of no new movement is, as they say, ain't nothing new under the sun. Under the sun. And if you watch closely, you discover the people who do such things, they're not very creative. Mm -mm. They're not too fancy. (laughs) And they can be a little sloppy. Yeah. But if we too busy to where we're not paying attention, then yes, you wake up, you woke, and there will be things done that will help lull you back to sleep. So I like where you you describe it. You say, hey, there's an anti-woke movement. In the anti-woke movement, they're trying to feed everybody NyQuil. Go on back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Yep. You know what I mean? and, and, and not only that, it's um, it's really a power play um, that we, I will say we, uh, got comfortable with the advancements our ancestors fought for. And we have collectively taken our hands off the plow. And it's important that we recognize, like I said, our heroes aren't coming back. So if we don't step up and 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 keep things going in the direction they should, we cannot take off the gas. We can't take our foot off the gas. And we have to teach our kids how to come behind us and plow for themselves. Awesome. Awesome. I, I love the way you describe that. And it helps me really think because, you know, At times you worry, there have been certain people in leadership for so long. And some people even argue that, hey, there was no, you know, succession planning. There's no passing of the torch. But then, you know, people, as they say, fires and funerals. Mm -hmm. And when the funerals come, who's prepared to take the torch when they weren't prepared? Because it can take 10, 15, 20 years to learn how to do these things. Right. And when our heroes are in their last days, then what are we going to do next? And what are conservatives doing? 
building the bench, grooming, running for school board. And that's where the bench begins. And so if we also aren't running for school board, if we also aren't running for city council, if we also aren't, we're leaving things in their hands. They're raising the next crop of leaders. What are we doing? So true. So true. Well, I want to thank you to our speaker tonight for getting us warmed up, taking us there. Sharing with us not only your testimony, but your passion and sharing with us how you have begun to take and transform your pain into purpose. Not only in as you run for office, but with the Phoenix Foundation. And I like the way you described it. You say, thank you to my alma mater for teaching me entrepreneurship. We love entrepreneurship here at Southern Soul. Because what it represents is a form of flexibility and freedom. Mm -hmm. For when you begin to decide you're going to do this thing, you have the flexibility and freedom mm -hmm. to say, how am I going to pay my bills? And I love that flexibility. I love that freedom. And now you answer the question, because I remember I was following your campaign. I'm like, why her graphics so nice? And why her, you know, <laughs> marketing so nice? You know, I'm a little jealous and envious, you know what I mean? Because at Southern Soul, we got the best, right? <laughs> but I was, I was a little envious, right? You know, not jealous, envious, right? But in that, it makes sense. You, you got all kinds of skills and gifts. So kudos to you for doing your thing. And thank you for hanging out here with us at Southern Soul. Next up, people, what we're going to do is do open discussion. So we're going to hear a little mix from my brother, K Boogie. I don't know what he's going to do. He probably going to mix common or something on theme. I don't know. But we're hey. going to hear a mix from K Boogie. What's up, K Boogie? Talk to me, man. What's on your mind? Hey, yo, she said, no, keep you book, man. I'm going to play no, keep you book, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So for the audience. Let's start with the typing first, because I want to get y'all to type in a little bit. And just so you know, we typically go to about 930. But just to remind you, our good judge is going to come on because she had a schedule shift around at 1030. We're going to record it. If you can't hang out that late, I expect you not to. But if you want to, we're going to pause the recording. Actually, let me go ahead and hit pause now since I'm awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited, y'all, to be here for my first experience with Dr. Robin. Why I say doctor? No, Judge Robin K. Hayes. It's been a long day and you've had a long day. Tell us about your day. I mean, were you doing evening court, your night court? I mean, I saw that was on your campaign, too. What have you been up to? Well, um, today was a real busy day. Um, today, I was on the 1B docket in General Sessions Court here in Davidson County, Nashville. And what that docket does is um, it handles um, traffic tickets at 830 um, and then and traffic, other types of traffic violations. And then at 10 o'clock, uh, we hear a civil docket, which could be anywhere from a car accident um, landlord tenant issues. So there was a lot of eviction today going on on the docket or housing questions and debt collection issues. So that's a pretty um, stressful and important docket because we're dealing with the masses and we are dealing with issues that make people vulnerable to coming to General Sessions Court, whether it's on a civil or criminal matter, because most of the people that are hitting this docket 
are poor. Um, they're mm. indigent. Um, they can't afford to live where they're living because of the housing crises that Nashville's in. But I believe it's happening all across the country. And um, they're, they've made some choices, um, young choices uh, with mm. de- uh, debt issues. And now that they're adults, it's coming back to haunt them in a bad way. And so I have to make really tough decisions um, about housing, about how much somebody can pay back on the debt. And people are in crises. They're afraid. They're full of anxiety. So I have that going on this morning. And then um, after that, um, I'm a I'm a mom. I picked my daughter from school, and even though she's 23 years old, uh, she does she. I still pick her up from school. She's a third year law student. And then um, I got ready to go to a, um, I, oh, actually, I went to an NAACP Zoom because I'm, I'm a member of the NAACP. And I also participate in the Zoom with Fisk University Alumni Association uh, yes. here in Nashville. I love this guy. Yes, so, yeah, yes, I'm yes. doing all of this in my car while I'm waiting for my daughter to finish up. And then we head out to a wonderful, um, This was, you would appreciate this. This was a live podcast called Deep, Deep Dish Conversation. Okay. And they had all the eight black women judges um, here in Davidson County on the panel talking about some issues that are real important to the Nashville community. And it was a very diverse crowd. These were people who are interested in change. And um, and we got to talk. They got to meet the judges and have a good conversation. It was led, led by Deep Dish Conversation host Jerome Moore. So it was it was really this is my day. And I, and so like being on here tonight sort of reminds me. I hope my daughter doesn't hear me. When I ran for U.S. Senate, I was on Zooms all day and I was just ready to go. I, and I love it. So it sort of reminds me of running for office. Awesome. Because um, I was awesome. working const- constantly. That is so, so exciting. You know, before we get into about you, I would love to hear about the backdrop of Nashville. Eight women judges. I mean, what's going on in Nashville that, you know, kind of get you guys to eight women judges? I mean, we need to figure out what y'all are doing and copy that. Tell us about Nashville. We actually have more women judges sitting in the history of Nashville now. And we have a total of, I believe, eight black, like I said, eight black women judges who are sitting, who are sitting now. Um, so that is historical. And I, w- I wish I could I wish I had the picture ready. I could share the screen to show a picture of all of us. But we have our first African-American woman judge in Chancery Court, which is a big deal um, because that handles a lot of business tra- transactions. Um, we have I unseated by myself. Um, and uh, another black woman, we unseated incumbents. So that was a big deal. And we already had um, we already had three um, sitting African-American women judges. Also. And so this is this is pretty um, this is pretty big. And also on this panel, that's why I'm singing eight. I think it was eight of us in the panel. Centoria, Centoria Brown Long was on the panel and she is um, she went to she was a trafficking victim. Okay. And she actually um, was convicted of killing her pimp or uh, com- uh, killing a John. And um, and she has a, this this book out. She has a Netflix series and um, on her journey. And um, she her um, 
she actually received clemency um, from the governor. And so she was on the panel t- tonight and wow. to talk about her experiences in prison. So it was kind of it was kind of a really honor to be at Bell Court Theater tonight on this on this um on this panel. But I think that going back to your question, there's just a change in the atmosphere. Mm. You know, people want new kind of leadership. And I think this is the time that black women are really showing up and showing out um, in in uh, running for office and being and being elected. Um, People want change. People want something different. And I think black women um, bring uh, a special narrative uh, when it comes to addressing issues of poverty, um, adjust, addressing issues of fairness, addressing issues related to justice. And so that's that's what I'm saying, that people want change. Yes. Um, people want leadership that looks different and that can speak um, to the stories of um of so many people that it's not mm. just a linear perspective and a perspective that we're used to seeing and have been seeing over and over and over and over again in years to come. And I have found just in the circles I've been that everybody kind of wants this change. Wow. White men, white women, black women, black men, people want this kind of change. And so I actually won, um, uh, with 62% of the vote uh, wow. against this incumbent. And I think it was important to communicate a message bridging um, get, bridging um, conversations uh, around class, gender, and race. Mm. So I can talk about it in that context. So, yeah, I think that's the, re- the, re- the reason why. We had a great message. We ran with sincere message to change. And this is what, what happened in Nashville. And I'm really proud of it. We have also, we have an African-American public defender. Mm. Um, We have two African-American women who are criminal court judges, which is a big deal. So they're hand, they're doing sentencing and jury trials. And so, yeah. That's pretty awesome. Um, You know, the, you know, Nashville is my college town. Right. And it makes me so, so, so proud because I was there before the NFL got there and it was called Music City, but I didn't see much music. Now you go back. There's a hundred cranes. There's constructions. There's, you know, the the African-American Museum. There's so much happening in Nashville. The one thing that I'm really proud about you is that, you know, you not only, you know, spent some time at Vanderbilt, my school, but also right across the street, down the street at Fish University. Let's, I'm excited. So let's fall back. Here at Southern Soul, we love a good origin story. You know what uh, origin story, you know, in certain circles, they call that a good testimony, you know, like at church on, on Wednesday, you know, and sometimes people don't get that testimony. And I, I said, it's calm down. It ain't for you. But I guarantee you the good Lord got it from someone. I'm proud of your accomplishments and I would love to you for you to tell us your stories and, you know, your education and, and everything. But before that, tell us your story, your origin. Where are you from? Where you grew up? Where were you educated and the stuff that got you started on your journey today? Well, um, that's a really good question. And um, my origin story is at 1081 New Circle Road, Lexington, Kentucky, lot 72. I grew up in a trailer park and um, and it was rough. It was a it was a slummy place. In fact, um, 
a few months ago, I went back to see that place. I hadn't seen it since I left that place when I was going into the 12th grade. And some of the trailers are still there um, over 30 years ago. And well, let's see here. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. I'm telling my age. I don't <laughs> mind. Let's see here. Um, so, yeah. 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 Almost. Yeah. About about uh, almost about 35 years ago. So it's pretty far back. Um, some of the trailers are still there. It, it was a bad area, but everything connected to that trailer park um, shaped who I am today. And um, I just believe that even though it was rough, you know, I experienced racism. We were the only African-American family that lived in the trailer park. It was just my mom and myself. And but even in the midst of that, I found community because what connected all of us is that we were all poor and we all had the stigma of that trailer park. And so I was kind of an anomaly in the trailer park because I was black. So if it probably it hadn't been for me in that trailer park. Um, those folks that grew up with me and they probably wouldn't have never had a, a, a meaningful or a long term interaction with a black person. Um, so, um, but at the same time, although I grew up in the trailer park, I also spent a lot of time at my aunt's house who lived in a, um, a black middle-class neighborhood. So I also experienced that. So everything you think of in going down park, so we called it, um, going to, um, night block parties, walking around the block, meeting with your friends, um, playing until the sun went down, all of that. I, I had that experience too. So I was in between both of these worlds. Um, and so, um, but, and just trying to find who I am and identity. So one thing that I cl clutched to was education because I had to get out of the trailer park. Mm. And so I really worked hard in school. And even though I had a tough time at my cousin's house, um, that experience, they taught me my timetables. I mean, I learned a lot there academically. I really pushed academic academically. Um, there were some challenges. Um, my mother was going through a phase and um, and I kind of slacked off in school, but I came back with a vengeance and um, I worked hard. So this is elementary school. I'm coming back with a vengeance. I'm just thinking I got to get out of this trailer park. And so I worked really hard in school and got in advanced classes and um, just kind of stayed the course. But again, I was torn between these two worlds um, of being identifying with black folks and living with white folks. Um, so it was it, that was that was a little bit of a identity struggle. Um, but I will tell you that what kept me grounded was my faith. Um, um, when I went back to visit Lexington and saw the trailer, I had my uh, my husband to take me to my old church, um, Quinn Chapel AME Church. And really, that was the that was the foundation, my faith in God. I mean, church was a place where I was a firm, where I knew God loved me and I was surrounded with community and language um, that that spoke to the, uh, the things that I was experiencing. Um, I, my relationship with my dad was very distant um, um, for all sorts of reasons that I'm probably now at 52 realizing. Um, 
And I was just kind of a loner. I was just trying to, like I said, get out of the trailer park. But it was my faith that really kept me grounded. And like I said, in uh, Quinn Chapel AME Church, um, where I said speeches, where I taught Sunday school, where I learned, learned about God. Um, so even my mother kind of drifted off from the church. My mother, I was still going to church. Like I, my mom was taking me to church because I wanted to go to church. Yes. And when I couldn't make it to church, I played church at home. I had uh, cut on the evangelist. We had this brown coffee table. I sit there, open up the Bible, and I would have my own churches if I was the preacher. Um, so all of that together, all of the the um, the suffering, the the things that I saw, the um, the abuse that I even experienced, all of that came together um, in my faith and just led me um, to Fisk University. And so that was my ticket out of the trailer park. So I knew when I went to Fisk, I was never coming back. And um, even though mom had moved to another place, I just knew that I had to leave. And so I never, I really never came, came back to that spot. I mean, I come back and visit, but never really came back back. Um, so that's how I ended up. I ended up at Fisk and boy, that was transitional for me because that was definitely a place where my faith was nurtured. My chaplain there, um, Reverend Archibald, um, helped me with that. Um, I became a leader, I pledged. I mean, it was just like, you know, I, I think about all the things that I did and the environment out of which I came and I still managed to make these kind of choices. I became SGA president. I became president of my sorority. I was, I had already pushed academically. So I phased out of almost my first year of college and, um, I did a lot of things, but I will say, looking back on that, I wish I had a mentor. Mm. I wish I had somebody that could say, okay, we got something here. This is something going here. And I wish I had somebody to really, I could talk to and understand what mentoring meant. When I look back, I think about uh, Novella Page. I call her Aunt Novella. She, mm. she, she helped me go get my Delta stuff. Even she was AK, but she still took me to get my Delta stuff. Wow. She's AK, but she helped you get your Delta she stuff together? She helped me together? go pick up my Delta. So I didn't know what I was getting. They just told me to go get this. And that. I didn't know what I was doing. And, <laughs> and but all of this was God, you know, leading me in this direction. Okay. Even though I didn't like the trailer park, even though I didn't like certain things. God is working all of this for my good coming up. So you want to talk about a story of origin, a testimony. It, it is. So God is working all this out. I think about Reverend Archibald, my chaplain. She was a mention. Definitely. She was feeding my faith. Definitely talking about ministry and all of that. Definitely feeding my faith because I would end up answering a call to call to preach a call to ministry. Um, but but somebody really coaching me yeah. alone. I, and I can see how I've done that with my my daughter because I have experience. One thing my daughter said to me today, she was like, she always makes jokes like, oh, um, what did she make a joke about today? She made a joke about something about she said, Oh, I can't say I'm first generation judge. You know, she just makes jokes like that. I said, Yeah, you can't say that. Oh wow. And uh, so I said, I said. And then we were just talking. She said, mom, you're first generation college. And I said, huh? And I said, you're right. She said, you're the first person to go to college in your family. Mm -hmm. And I said, 
you're right. And I said, you know, I just sometimes, you know, you have to be gentle to yourself and say, hey, this is your this is the first time you're coming out and learning different things. And so with Elizabeth and even my son, I've been uh, been can offer them a little more coaching because I have some some experience um, and experience with that. But I do recognize and I help Elizabeth, especially since she's in the law career is to say, hey, you need to have mentors. You need to to have people to guide you because where Elizabeth is going, I don't know that. Even though I'm a lawyer, I'm I'm a judge or whatever, there are some things that she needs somebody to share with her and guide her on on this journey. Um, But anyway, this was that. I I think the mentor piece, I really definitely needed going to law school. So it got kind of wavy there going from this to law school because I didn't get into a lot of schools. I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was kind of getting bits and pieces of information. Because you're the first, right? You're the first generation of so many things. Keep going. First generation college, first generation law school. Didn't even think about it in that perspective. First generation divinity school. First generation divinity school, first generation to do a lot, a lot of things. And I'm just and I'm and I'm sitting here trying to navigate this. But God, each and every step is I I, I go through the rocky road because I don't have the mentor. But but God is navigating all all of this. He's God is orchestrating all of this because Elizabeth has to come. Adric has to come. Everything has to come. And and I'm and, and my husband. He, he, when I was running for judge, he said, you're here for such a time as this. And I, and I believe that. So my, my point of origin is that trailer park. It was a slummy trailer park. It it was, it was, uh, it made me, I was caught between the world, that world and, 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 and Mont Road, 1504 Mont Rose Drive and 1081 New Circle Road. And, 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 and the, and trying to find out who I was, because on this side, people might call me white, but the white people definitely saw me as black. Exactly. So it was always, I was caught between these these two worlds. But yeah. when I ran for Senate, even though Elizabeth said, you keep talking about that Senate race, uh, I realized, I realized I, that I was supposed to be caught between those worlds because I mm. needed to speak to both of those communities. Wow. And so when I was running for Senate, I talked about passion for passion for Tennessee from the hood to the holler. Mm. And so I think that it's important to have a voice wherever that voice is that can speak to the hood and speak to the holler and bring those communities together. Because you know what, what I, my, my origin is great is, is not about me. It's about what I've been called to do in terms of social justice work, community work, and pushing my family and the people around me in those directions. You know what I love about your story is that there's there's so much there, so much there. So, you know, and I can't wait to get a chance to slow you down so we can start working on that biography. I'm already claiming it. I'm already (laughs) claiming it. The first biography published from Southern Soul is going to be the autobiography you know, coordinated, written by Southern Soul about her story. I'm going to tell you why. You talk about the number of worlds, right? You say it's the world. There's one world at church, then there's another world at your aunt's house, and there's another world at the trailer park. But then there's another world you went to when you went to Fish University. 
because Fisk University is a very prestigious school with some history. They got kids with a lot of money coming into their school. And that's one thing I love about it. So it's all of these worlds. But one thing I've learned is you develop these different languages for navigating these worlds. And these people who live in these circles and these bubbles, you talking to all of them, but none of them can talk to each other. Tell me about this. This is something you said. You said fist for you was a cultural turning point. That fist was nurturing. There were people there who supported your gift. Tell us about that. What, what was happening different when you got the fist, when people began to nurture that gift? Well, um, that's a really good question. And um, I remember my mother, um, she didn't. She she didn't know a lot, but you know she'd never been to college at that time. But she said, "When you leave here, you're going to become this woman or something." She said, and I think Mom knew that I needed some more, you know, growth and interaction. And I and I certainly did find that at Fisk. Um, it was a place where I could be myself. I found community and I found black folk who are like me, Hmm. who are interested in academics leadership. So I went to Henry Clay High School and I was and I was the only black woman except LaShawn Kale. I think LaShawn, she was at Henry Clay. So we were all in advance classes. I think it was just me and LaShawn. LaShawn was interracial. And it was Darren and Daryl. Daryl and Darren, they were twins. LaShawn, but I don't think LaShawn was, and then myself. So I was really the only black female. Mm-hmm. And he, But going to Fisk, you Ooh. had other black folk interested in what you were doing. I love me some fists. They were on they were on track. You know what I mean? Everybody was interested. And what everybody was focused in that direction. And so and I found nurture, I was nurtured through my experience with chapel. I was respected because I was smart. And I tutored. I was the faith person on campus. It was a great affirming experience for me. And you could do. I had so many good friends. Like I had friends that I could laugh with and they look like me. And, and and we shouldn't forget about your your, your karaoke and your dance skills because I happen to know <laughs> from your TikTok, you've known I, I didn't nickname you the dancing judge because I'm like, sister be getting it. Now tell me this. Have you always been into dance and you know uh, uh, um, what is it uh, karaoke? Tell us about that. Well, wow, that's a huge switch. So I haven't always been into dance. I mean, I love to dance. I just love to dance, and everybody knows me loves to dance. So I yeah, I would say at this, yes, definitely, because it went that was this. Now we talk about old school now. Yeah, because they had the parties in the gym now. When a new dance came out, everybody was trying to teach everybody the new dance. 
It was like old school. And you didn't just get ready to dance for a TikTok or, or Instagram or Facebook. You got ready to dance as you were going to the party. Yes. And you had to be on point and ready for the new dance. That's how it was. Mm, and at mm, this, mm. we had lots of parties in that gym that yes, were live yes, yes. parties. So a lot of parties. I love that gym. A lot of a lot good parties. And so I have always loved to dance. I tried out for cheerleading in high school, didn't make it. Um, but I always like movement and music and inspiring people. I can't sing a lick, but I <laughs> love karaoke. I do one primary karaoke song, which is Proud Mary. Oh, and um, I just like to be That's myself. A good one. It is like I wish I had some like some backup people to help me. My husband helped out with Ike one time. Oh yeah, oh he plays the Ike. So so you definitely do the the Ike and Tina. Well, you say uh, I can probably say left a good job in the city. You gotta have the shoulders. (laughs) I see you, anime. I see you. You gotta have the Tina shoulders. But yeah, I've just always been authentic. I grew up that way. And and I think people appreciate it. And I think that's what has helped me. Um, I think that's what's helped me. I've always wanted to lead. I've always wanted to run for office. And um, let's, let's I've just about- been my authentic self. So, yeah, I think that shows in my karaoke and my dance. Yeah, let's let's talk about, you know, I, I love the story of the Senate race because it was a Senate race that prepared you for your current role as a judge. And I love that. I love the story. And I love one of the quotes you said I shared earlier is if you really want to know who your friends are, try running for public <laughs> office. Right. Because people going to show their colors. Right. But I would love to hear about how you even got to the Senate place. I mean, were you working at the Tennessee Coalition to end domestic violence? Were you doing community work? How did you even get to the point of running? Because I know you were in Atlanta at one time. You were riding Marta. You had two kids. You know, (laughs) you went through a divorce, you know, practicing law. I mean, you had a lot. I'm just fast forward. But how did you get to the point of running for Senate? I mean, did you just all of all of that, all of that. So um, I had always wanted to run for office. So my senior year at Fisk, um, and you might recall this, um, King Day, we used to march down a municipal auditorium. Mm. And so I graduated in 88. That had been 88. I was a senior. I was the SGA president. And um, I was the, the speaker for all the college students. And so we marched down there and that used to be when King Day was packing about 8,000 folks here in Nashville. So that was a pretty big engagement. So I remember I was interviewed afterwards and they asked me what I wanted to be. And I said, I wanted to be the first black woman U.S. Senator. And of course, Carol Mosley Brown became that um, from Illinois. Um, But, you know, when I left Fisk, I went to law school. I had a pretty tough time because it was a cultural shock for me. Um, going to law school and just navigating all of that without a mentor, like I was saying. And I and then when I graduated from law school, I had um, I shortly, not too long after that, um, I was struggling with my call to ministry and end up calling the ministry and I end up getting married, I end up having kids and I just, ended, then life happened. 
And so all of those dreams and thoughts, all of that set aside, it became taking care of my kids, getting through this bad marriage and making sure my kids had a good life. And I worked three jobs to make sure my kids had health insurance and a good life as a single mother because I eventually got divorced. But um, but that inkling came back to me and it was when I married Arnold, who is a really good man. And um, I had been divorced for a while and I met Arnold. And um, we were moving. We were about to leave. Um, we're, we're, we're building this house that we live in and um, and uh, we were packing up stuff in my house and I looked in my trunk and uh, Miss Fielder, Vivian Fielder had written a note. She said, when I was in at Fisk, like I said, that you are, she said, I suspect that you're going to be um, in Washington. She was just saying all these wonderful things about me. And I was like, what have I done with my life? And I'm just being honest and, and candid with you right now. And I saw, um, I saw Elizabeth, I said, Elizabeth is going to law school. And I said, even though I'm, I was chaplain at, at Meharry at the time and pretty successful in terms of my chaplaincy, I didn't feel too successful in terms of my law degree. And um, I said, I need, to, I, need to, I need to get off. I need to get up and get back. I need to get this back. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so um, it just so happened I was asking around who's running for U.S. Senate here in Tennessee. I said, I'm going to do it. I said, even if I just put my name on the ballot, I don't have to collect any money. I just want my name on the ballot. Awesome. So I told my husband, I'm going to run for U.S. Senate. We saw who was running. And I went ahead. I filed my petition. I was so scared. And I don't even know why I was scared, but I did. I just wanted my name on the ballot. But guess what? It started getting good to me. Uh-oh. It started getting good to me. I started raising money. I started having people believe in my message and I started having Zooms, meeting with people all across the state of Tennessee. I started making phone calls. It was during COVID. And so uh, I had some flexibility and I was making phone calls to folks all around this state and I was generating support. Wow. And I came in second place for U.S. Senate. And awesome. um I, I almost won it. Like it was like if I had just started early, I, I raised my first dollar, I think April 1st and early voting was in July. And, and it was two other people that started out and um, another black lady get, came in first. And I think because we were both running, we were able to make sure that there was some diversity at, the, at the, for the for the for the um, for the Democratic nominee. But, yeah, that's how it started. To tell you the truth. Awesome. You know, that's a beautiful. Just want my name on the ballot. It's a beautiful story. And and one thing I love about the story is that you begin to tell me about, you know, that you've always had this theme of God in your story, this faith in God and this desire to help people. But I remember what you told me when you said it was important for you to run because you may win, you may not win, but that's not the end of it. 
you continue to go on and become judge. So it obviously wasn't the end. It was but, not the end of it. <laughs> what I love that you shared is the witness. You know, at church, they talk about the witness, right? In that you begin to talk about when you're running the people who are watching the young people. Tell me about that. Well, I think young people are watching and people are watching. I think people are running for office now because I ran. Mm. People are telling me that they're inspired because I ran. And um, so I've been able to help other people. Um, I I would like to, since we talked last, um, we're coordinating a program called the Passion for Justice Political Action Camp where we're going to be training girls on how to run for office. I'm really passionate about running for office. Oh, wow. And we're going to be piloting out of MLK High School here in Nashville. And we're going to pilot it there. But we really want to target girls who were like me, who grew, grew up in a trailer park or some underserved community, but they were diamonds in the rough. And that we want to collect them and give them the mentorship that they need to become successful leaders without having to do the rough and pop and lock like I did, but to go on a, a much straighter path. Um, so that's what we want to do with young people. And I've gathered some folks up or it looks like we're going to get some money behind it for some stipends for these girls to complete the program during the summer. It's going to be a two week camp. Awesome. Um, the Passion for Justice Political Action Camp. Awesome. And so, yeah. Awesome. It's awesome and it's beautiful because, you know, we were talking earlier about the importance of beginning to build the pipeline, to begin to nurture the next generation and prepare them. And I love that because, like you said, we have to be gentle with ourselves because think about how hard you work and how much you did. And you didn't have a map. Didn't have a map. People make it to the destination successful over and over again. We're going to have to sit down one day and count your first because something tells me you got a, a lot more first. And you did this all without a map. Think about when you give that next person, that next young lady, a map, a mentor, how much more? of a blessing is going to be. One of the things I love about your story is the trunk of things. I think it's an imagery. It's beautiful. But I love how I like to keep a little things for keepsakes. You know, they remind me of certain things, high school or certain things. And people are like, why are you keeping that old stuff? And it's certain things. We're going to got a couple more questions, but I want to talk before we begin to wrap up, I want to talk about the trunk, the trunk of things that you use as a reminder of who you were. Yes. Tell us about the trunk of things and why that was important to you in your journey. Wow. Well, um, I have this trunk that I've always kept and I put positive things in it. And so I go through the trunk every now and then. So I went through that trunk to, to look at it, to review it, to, you know, make sure everything is, positive in the trunk. And I think everybody should have that trunk. So I have started one for both of my children. They both have, they both, they have trunks too, with all their positive stuff in it. Mm 
because you always need to pull out those things to, to remind you who you were, are, who you are, who you were, and where you had planned to go. Awesome. And, and I'm going to start me a trunk. Can you help me? Like, what should I put in my trunk? I mean, is there some love letters in there? What's in there? Love letters, cards, writings that you've done. I've got um, the poster from my first party when I was president of the Delta chapter Alpha Beta. I've got that in there. I've got letters from like my teachers in there. I've got newspaper articles about myself. I have pictures in there. I have um, souvenirs in there from things that I've gone on. Um, so all that's in my trunk. And I'm so glad that I pulled that card out. So Miss Fielder is still alive. And I told her about the card that she had written me. So wow. the trunk is just not about you, but it's reminding the people that poured into you that they poured into you and for them to see you to become what you thought, what they thought you could be is important. Yes. It was that card that said, I'm getting my name on this ballot. This is this is who I am. Right. And that was from Vivian Fielder, right? To tell you the truth, I wasn't living who I was. That marriage, even though I was raising my kids, I, I, I poured it all into the kids. I had a decent job, but I wasn't being who all of what, who God had called me to be. And it was time to reclaim it. Wow. And that is the role that the trunk played for me was to reclaim who I am. And I, every day, this judge position pushes me in that direction. Awesome. People think I'm helping them, but God is prune. You won't talk about pruning. I, that song, he's pruning me. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's pruning me and I don't like it. It's pain. I don't. But, but he got to prune me so that I can blossom. But God is pu pushing me in this direction to help me to grow and to become better. Because my dad... My dad, oh, you want to go into this space? Oh my gosh. Yes. My Tell dad. Me about how you rekindled that relationship. Who I had not grown up with. I had reconnected with my dad on a whole nother level. And Glenda, who I now call my stepmom. Oh. I'm going to let it all out tonight. You, uh -oh. you called me after 10 o'clock. Uh oh, so you got to let it out. Let it out then. I wasn't even comfortable calling my dad daddy because mm. of trauma. But guess what? Dad, can we do this? He, he My dad is dying now. Mm. Guess who's been there almost every weekend? Wow. Me. 
Guess who he asked? He said, who's going to take care of Glenda? I will. Wow. So I just want to say to everybody, it's never too late. My, my New Year's resolution was one thing. Forgive. Forgive. Forgive myself. Forgive others. I, I'm, I, I met with my dad at the most special time. I'm a chaplain. Mm-hmm. I found that out. Um, I'm with him now over the most special time of his life. And that is the end of his life. And sure, do I wish I could have things could have been redirected, but my dad told me. He said he had a vision when he and my mother were together and I was in the baby bed and he saw an entity with me in the baby bed. And he was told by the spirit of God that Robin, you're not going to be there with Robin, but Robin is going to be all right. There was a spirit, he said, with me in the baby bed. So I believe from that story that God has always been with me. And that even though things may not be as we would have wanted them, or maybe as they should have been in our eyesight, that things do come together. And there is always this opportunity for reconciliation and healing. Yes. I told my dad, it's all right. And do I got a tall order to feel? Yeah. Do I feel like me? But I'm happy to do it. Amen. Um, so uh, it's been weird. It's been like, you know, we, like I've been going through a lot these past, um, you know, weeks with, you know, with a lot of different things, but, um, but it's been all right though. Lovely, lovely, lovely. You know, judge Robin Hayes, you know, it's been a blessing to share this opportunity with you for you to share with us your story in a way that it can be, continue to be inspiration for others. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day where you're doing so much, but you're still helping to heal the next generation, those people. And I know it to be true that you're the right person to do the work that you're doing. Thank you. After all, who else can talk to these people, connect with these people, understand these people, relate to these people, pray for these people, other than somebody who's been prayed for many, many, many times over? Oh, yes. Tell us what's next for you. Tell us about your journey. Something tells me your journey is not over. Oh, that's my dad said. He said, this ain't it. Yeah, you you, you still. This ain't it. You still got a few tricks up your sleeve. I can tell. This is not the last we've heard of Judge Robin K. Hayes. We'll just have to wait and see. Amen.
We'll just have to wait and see. Well, but I want to enjoy the journey, and um, I really, I really am, and I just, it's gonna be all right. Everything is gonna oh, be so all right. God has seen me too too much. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, um, so, but yeah, I really appreciate it, and thank you for um, looking at my TikToks and and sharing, and I hope that they're bringing joy and education into the lives of people about what um, I'm about and what I'm doing with the court. Yes, and when I begin to publish this show, I'm going to make sure I link you to your TikTok link and link other social media because, y'all, she's the dancing judge. Don't let the smooth taste fool you. She ain't always been refined, but <laughs> she refined now. <laughs> Dr. Robin K. Hayes, thank you for being here, and we look forward to talking to you soon again. Thank Take you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.